Welcome to Open Book, featuring literary dialogues with Nina Serrano. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. My guest today is Q.R. Hand. Q.R. Hand, born in New York City, immersed himself in the world of jazz, ideas, and active struggle for civil rights, social justice, and peace. Landing in San Francisco in the tumultuous, freewheeling late 1960s at 32 years old, he joined the vigorous poetry movement and soon became a very unique poetry, political performance poet, incorporating bebop elements of style. The author of two books of poetry and a chapbook. For the last 25 years, QR often performs in the poetry and jazz ensemble Wordwit. Oh, good to be here. I'm so glad you are. Well, you certainly have not stopped writing since any of these books came out. You still fill notebook after notebook. Well, yes, I have tons and tons of words. Be years. I might be sitting in a notebook for 10 years. You know, I don't have a regular discipline of about writing. Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to read a poem that somehow uh, just the words become more relevant. Now, it's probably about 30 years old, 35 years old. It's called Our Hemisphere. Afro-Carib, Latin, Hillbilly, Semitic, Hamitic, semi-Dravidian natives who might have come from India and shall not be in the Indies here. Those carrying glyphics to the new world whose old dwellers take to the hills still and teach us to worship their black and brown and golden and peach pink urban populist, left-winged, anarchistic, universal, quaqua-versal, color-coded, god-headed, new world peoples of every shade there is and we're making more every day, a class containing classes, the X's and Y's of manifesting humanities becoming the music of the world containing all excluding none. Let the Klan and the Nazis go back. We home here now. I love that. It is so relevant. It could have been, you could have written this last night. It's so sad that it's more true now than it was then. It really describes both the continents. Right. Pole to pole and ocean to ocean. Through every border. Yeah, that's about the Americas, of which we are one part. So, what else would you like to read us? Well, I do a lot of different kinds of poems, though mostly what uh, is published tends to be political, social experience or ideas. But then I do other work, and this is a for instance, older Colorado, and I'm working out on an old compact electronic typewriter. And I start seeing red, tiny red. What's the point of using an arachnid anyhow? 
so tiny, if I had used red ink, that is, if the electric typewriter cartridge did its spray job on the page in the color of blood, like the writer thinks, this minuscule eight-legged mover would have been a period wandering mistakes all over the paper. The writer watched it scoot and said, there's another living reason most punctuation just gets in the way. Thinks about ending his first novel with a black widow, though. Wow, insects as punctuation. <laughs> Do you use much punctuation in your work? I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't, you don't use, use any at all. So all the guides to how it would be read are just the spaces. Yeah, space-time. There's a space as notation. So your work is quite musical when you talk about notation. Yeah, after the fact. Uh, there may be something that's going in me rhythmically, but it's kind of how I think. If you're reading from the page, or you're a, a general reader, it's space. Time. I'm going to read this, and you'll see how I use space. This is not a poem about music. But I see that in the title of the poem, you refer back to certain traditions in African-American poetry by, instead of saying the tales of geography and times, you say the tales of geography and times, hearkening back to people who wrote in the black idiom of the time. Right, but it's also broken down like this. Downwise, it's a play on details. Oh, details of... So you get both in there looking at it like that or depending upon how your ear and mind play. And this is different with each person. So this is called Details of Geography and Times. He said at the time, his daddy was icebound and bemanxed. The African emperor went before the league my mama told me about, demanding and imploring just acts from the authorities. He said his daddy once got five million marks in one note change from getting just one pack of cigarettes from the corner store, or maybe igloo, in Murmansk, where they were icebound in the 30s. And he said, when his daddy got home and told his compatriots and showed them this big banknote he got in change for just one pack of Luckies or Camels or maybe Chesterfields and it might as well be Siberia cold stuck in port neighborhood store he went into with German paper money while Selassie implored and deplored in terms of Nubian 
eschatology and Italian armor more than stone mean, more than broken mime tracks and more champagne aptly deluged, hurried looks waiting for the shuffle that came in Stukas later. He said, his daddy said, his compadres called him a collaborator, him icebound and working, coming home with a small fortune and talking about organizing workers and they hadn't worked for months at home and stood in line for hopes that got recalled weekly and never heard of Vladivostok, I mean Mermont. He said, his daddy said, they really had it hard in the 30s. Wow. Funny lifestyle. I would come from work at La Posada, which was residential treatment program in the community, a, uh, an alternative to psychiatric hospitalization. I get off from there, you know, I might have done the, the overnight shift, so after shift changes, maybe 9.30, and I saunter over to the Cafe Babar, where I might continue a day or end a day, depending on my energy level and things like that. And the partner in the ownership court was his name. We're sitting there, and I'm getting a sandwich and a double espresso, and, uh, and it might have been after work. I might have already gotten a little half bottle of brandy and poured in the espresso. And Court starts talking about his father as a a, a worker on the, on the boats. What was happening at this time, and as he's doing that. In my own ear, I'm hearing my mother's voice talking about that same time, and then it goes from there. African emperor went before to leave my mama told. Well, historically related. Yes. We're talking about the, the mid and, uh, and later 30s, and he's talking about, the, and this is before Lynn Lease either under the table or very funny kind of commerce that he would be in a port in Mamax. Now, Emperor of Ethiopia, which is invaded by the Italian army, and he goes before the League of Nations, trying to point out they need to be doing something, and he turned his back. And so, so all these different things are, are going on. And he's, got, he's talking about this. Or he went into with German paper money while Selassie implored and deplored. And then when he gets back home and he's got cash and all his, all his buddies, they don't even have jobs. And he's... He's talking about organizing workers, which he actually was also trying to do, you know, and all they're saying is this pile of money because they got a lot of troubles. And that poem was inspired by your cafe life. Yeah, well, the, 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 mission, the mission life and the, 
that at that time. I go from work to the Cafe Babar, which is where I live, where I work, where I hang out, basically, or almost within 10 minutes of each other, at most. So you're immersed in your community. Well, uh, yeah, and that community was a lot of different people who were doing a lot of different things. You know, some politically, culturally, lots of musicians hung out there, lots of painters hung out there, lots of people who were teachers, students, and then starting to bring in some of the members of the Latin community because there's movement from the Cafe Babar to the Cafe Boheme down on 24th Street, which was into the, the Latin cultural scene in the same way that uh, the Babar was about any and everybody who fell in there. But it wasn't a Spanish language uh, concentrated Place. Well, the Café Bohème, by the late 70s, early 80s, became a magnet for the new immigrant intellectuals and artists that hung oh, out there. Yeah, awesome. Do you have some of your more recent work? Okay. A story poem. This is a story poem. Uh, Alejandro uh, recorded me doing this. Alejandro Murguia, who was the first Chicano Poet Laureate of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some people have enough problems. He sits there wringing his hands so tightly, at times they pale at the knuckle joints where fingers meet light brown hams. It says here, he beat up on his wife and kids before he was blindsided by a local economic enterprise one dark night in the streets real bad of the Mission District. Now, did he? He was the kind of hard-working man who might consider it perfectly all right to kick a little ass at home after all they were his. Didn't he feed them, provide them with a roof overhead, color television, new car he polished to a metallic sheen every Saturday afternoon? And hadn't he for years drunk and sober? In broken English and the kind of Spanish I'm told only the well-educated speak like that, in Peru, he rants about the niggers, cubanos, mulatas, who did it to him, left him in those streets with epileptoid visions, seized, convulsing in San Francisco, General Hospital, emergency, coming in and out of painful fogs, losing a piece of his mind with each shudder. Now, trying to hold on to his common sense, he touches the new metal plate in his head, first with one hand, then the other. They say he just found it last week. He used to carry his own weight in sacks, 
loading and unloading trucks with a green card in his back pocket before the union would let him apprentice, prove he could hammer, saw, measure to an exacting millimeter, fit perfectly angled wood against wood with these great hands. Now he forgets what he meant in the middle of a sentence, ends muddled thought with a smile, with a shrug. I am told he alludes to embarrassment in Spanish, which I don't understand. He thinks he must appear nice for us. He lists to the left in a slow, lopsided shuffle after two years in a wheelchair. The muscles have atrophied, the ones that still could receive, as he tries to remember accurate messages within, bring back to life his shattered central nervous system, fine physical intelligence on a cane the rest of his life. He had to sell the car a long time ago. This part is unclear to me in any language. At home, he thinks, his wife thinks, he should jump out of the window she gazes out of all the time. Is she dreaming of what, he thinks, the cholos and their street action? Sometimes he thinks any one of them, one or two or more, could have been the ones he never saw that night who cracked his skull, opened to fill their own pockets. He does not like how she looks at them. His papers say he curses at her, threatens because of what he thinks she is thinking. He says he gazes at her out of tears. He is too slow to hide. He thinks at home they overload him with dilantin. He can never remember the right time and amount and washes down with endless cans of Rainier ale. He thinks his kids make fun of him, miming his own clumsy gestures, fake tremors all over, taunting. He thinks they feel safe if they keep him slowly. I wonder if it is true. He says his family waits at the front door of their flat for the tribe of social workers who tend to the needs of himself and family through circulating paper that is always late. They can go down three flights to the mailbox faster than he and only bring what they want to him. He knows they whisper to these clerks. He is drunk and paranoid and dangerous, and he should live somewhere else. And soon, I believe it when he says he dreams nightly. He's a little boy in the hills of Peru climbing to get a look 
at Lima, just the other side of a rise he can never quite reach. Tremendous poem. It's kind of constructed out of a few different people with similar or kinds of experience. And it uh, brings up uh, some of the socioeconomic problems there. Uh, may, I'm talking about the mission district. That still continue the, today. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. And today, the, the new gentrification is making for yet another problem. Yeah, and this is before yeah. real gentrification. And what is this photograph? Oh. Now, this is a photograph of my father, his brother and sister, and their, their mother. And this is in Harlem, I'd say, uh, during the time of the, maybe just after the First World War. That would be my guess. Were they native New Yorkers? They came from Georgia just when daddy was maybe two or, or three. And now my father, that's Q.I. Quentin Roosevelt, and he really liked Harlem. He went to Townsend Harris High, so he went to CCNY. He played basketball with Harlem Y. Went to Columbia School of Pharmacy. He and a partner opened a drugstore pharmacy there in Harlem. And in George, Ethical Pharmacy was on 7th Avenue between 119th and 120th Street. The economic growth of the chains just undercut their operation not long after Second World War was over by 19. 50, so did he experience firsthand the Harlem Renaissance? Oh, yeah. And yeah. its culture? Mm-hmm. Did he fill you with stories about it? Incidentally. In incident. So incidentally, that history was part of your childhood? Uh, yeah, but, but I didn't know it. Details with very, very little significance, okay? So, as like pictures without context. This is my brother, who was my heart. He died, and this is John Hand. Yeah. Wow. He got uh, nephritis and uh, kidneys. And he he looks like a movie star. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A prince. We were close as adults, because we weren't close as kids. Now this is <laughs> this is the whole family picture around my sister's christening. And you're in short pants. Yeah. What year did you say this was? 1946. So Maybe boys, 24. this no, is no, no. That was my mama. I assure you, who we were the only people in the whole world uh, wearing short pants. Because actually. As I recall, in New York City, in, by 1942, certainly by 43 and 44, mm -hmm. little boys no longer mm -hmm. were wearing the short pants. Mm -hmm. Up until then, they wore short pants up until they hit a certain age. But by then, most boys would have been in long pants. Mm -hmm. Even your little brother would have mm -hmm. been in long pants. Of course. Who has to do the job 
of raising three children. I really influenced within the, the black arts, but Leroy, uh, Amiri Baraka was, was making, uh, and Larry Neal, but numbers of people there on the scene in New York were both fantastically experimental and kind of making it to the point to the man and the people in the street. Because you're trying to communicate. Who are you trying to communicate with? Who are you talking to? Like, who, as an artist, who are you addressing and how? Uh, you know, and how that gets uh, worked in uh, or over time. But that's the point. You're saying something. To your people. Yeah. Now, this is a poem that came to me. It was just lifted out of me, sitting in a class with uh, Diane DePrima and uh, Ann Waldman. This is in the mid-80s at uh, the summer program in, in Boulder. So this is a sustainer. Numberless are the sands on the seashore. Us folks are the peoples who look towards the sea. Vision and memory past. Perfect futures are strewn about our musics like seaweeds on the shore. Our eyes, hearts of fire, dancing on limbs aghast and bedazzled, caressing these sands and clapping spirits. Our souls are numberless, like bands of the spectra. Our hues are numberless. Jump back, brothers. See our sisters prancing on the sea. Their curves and spheres rounding off the edges of the sands, making sheets of molten glisten. We are evocations of this sweet liquid strumming on these vibrant far reaches on our faithful shore. This. Ritual clamor we are on this shore, spelling out the seasons of reason. Numberless beings grow gills, sprout wings, drunken on the bottom of pink coral reef, then leap the sea, sailing easy to a far to a star. We are stoned reflections of to view from there. These sands who do not know they're us, not these sands, our foundations on these wheels of things, rolling shores, surf to watch, waves yearn to roll and murmurs on these grits are relentless too in change in forms, numberless, pastelled and pale yellows mixed by the sea, wind, sun, our constant companions on this sphere, on this beachhead here, on our minds. And communal heart molds sands into cities and ports to welcome from the sea more ancestors to be, to play on this shore, notes of universal hide, seek. Time here is numberless. We've known not its name. We are the growth here. We are the trees. We are the creatures here. So it is said on which cosmic bet no wages subsist. Numberless are the names of this life on these sands, on the dream washed up on this shore. Us 
folks on the people to look towards the sea. Looking towards the sea, our songs are the bread of the shore, our spirits our spawn. On these quick sands, we name ourselves numberless. Wow. Yeah. That is a very difficult form. It's almost too clever because pieces start filling themselves in after a while. Let's review how people can get your poetry because this was so marvelous. There's your last book, Who's Really Blues? You can get that. You can go online. And look for QR Hand. Junior. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Thank you for listening to Open Book, featuring literary dialogues with Nina Serrano. PG&E compelled us to postpone the poetry reading by Dennis J. Bernstein, host of Flashpoints, author of Five Oceans in a Teaspoon. This time, Dennis will be joined by the Poet Laureate of San Francisco, Kim Schuck, Cherokee-Polish author of Rabbit Stories, Smuggling Cherokee, and Clouds Running In. They will both read at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley, on Wednesday evening, November 13th at 7.30. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and our supportive bookstores. That's November 13th. Kim Shuck, Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online worldwide.